Arlington police say protests Monday remain generally peaceful, but say there were, quote, several agitators. Send me another unit, please. Send me another unit. Look what you did to my store. This is a movement, I'm telling you. They're not going to stop. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. All right. Welcome back to Into the Fray. The election is tomorrow. A lot of you have probably already voted, but if you haven't, get on the internet and start researching the ballot items you'll be voting on. Find out what these candidates support and what's actually in the ballot measures. You probably already know who you support for president. But what about your state legislature? What about your city council? During the initial COVID surge, it was the local jurisdictions that committed the worst abuses in major Republican states. Dem states like California, New York, and especially Michigan, they were top-down awful, still are. But even in the red states, where voters carefully selected their state leadership, local jurisdictions committed some of the worst civil rights violations of the last 50 years. How many awful stories came out of local jurisdictions in Texas of all places? It's local mayors and city councils that are tolerating, and in some cases, even supporting the rioters. It's local district attorneys that are refusing to charge and then releasing violent rioters back onto the street to continue their destruction, all while targeting and prosecuting anyone who dares defend themselves, their homes, or their families. It's a local DA that's targeting the McCloskeys for defending their home. The couple didn't hurt anyone, and the rioters were on private property threatening them and their home. Yet it's the victims who are being prosecuted. A pregnant woman and her husband were targeted by the DA in Oakland County, Michigan, after she protected her family in a fast food parking lot. She had been followed, harassed, and threatened, and her family was in danger. And just like with the McCloskeys, no one ended up hurt. Yet it was her the local prosecutor went after. That prosecutor lost her primary only a month later. Local voting does make a difference. We have to be careful at every level. There are likely several state and local measures on your ballot that will affect your taxes, public safety, and your rights. Here, we have someone running for city council who wants to build a permanent homeless camp in our city. How about no? Remember that whatever you subsidize, you get more of. It seems like every few years, the local jurisdiction here puts a measure on the ballot to add another half percent to our sales tax. Do the math on your yearly purchases and see what that half percent adds up to. I bet it will shock and horrify you. Smart people in the area go to nearby cities to make big-ticket purchases. If you need a laptop, a TV, a washing machine, you'll save a lot of money by driving an extra 15 minutes. Still, I guarantee the measure will pass, just like the last one and the one before that. We need to be informed voters, and that's not that difficult. Just go on the candidate's website and read what they support. Read the ballot measures and the arguments for and against them. Know where you stand. Know your values. Recognize the difference between something that's right versus something that you want or will benefit you. Reject anything that benefits you at the expense of others. Reject really good ideas that have really bad ideas tucked into them. Expect fiscal responsibility from our representatives. They take more than enough of our money already. They just need to manage it more responsibly. We also need to have the courage to vote and live on principle rather than on peer pressure. One of the conspicuous trends that has been exposed in this election cycle has been fear of rejection. The silent majority used to be all the people who just minded their own business and then went and voted on election day. They weren't noticed at all during the hubbub running up to the election because they were quiet, 
kept to themselves, worked, focused on their families, their communities, their hobbies, and then they came out and voted, just as quietly. This year, there seems to have been a shift in who comprises the silent majority. This year, it seems to be made up largely of people who are afraid to speak up, but will vote their conscience when the time comes. Cancel culture has created an environment of fear, where you could lose your job, find your Twitter or Facebook account locked, or be rejected by your friends or family. This has created an election cycle where people are afraid to voice their conscience, or worse yet, have been persuaded to vote against their conscience in order to remain in the in-crowd. I have a quote hung up by Audie Murphy. Let me tell you a little bit about him. He took a German-occupied house under direct fire, killing six, wounding two, and capturing eleven. By himself. Three days after being wounded in the foot by a mortar, he took a radio and again, alone, put himself under direct German fire for an hour so he could accurately direct his men taking a hill. I want to read part of yet another account from the History Channel. It's called World War II Hero Audie Murphy, How Come I'm Not Dead, by Evan Andrews. Murphy knew that his men stood no chance against so large a force, so he instructed most of them to withdraw to pre-prepared defensive positions along a nearby tree line. As they ran for cover, he stayed behind and used his field telephone to call in an artillery strike. He had just enough time to radio his coordinates before salvos of German tank fire erupted around him. One shell immediately drilled a tree near a machine gun nest and showered its crew with deadly splinters of wood. Another hit a nearby tank destroyer and set it ablaze. Murphy's command post was collapsing before his eyes, but he held his ground and continued calling in the Allied artillery. In seconds, a curtain of friendly fire rained down between him and the advancing German infantry, pitting the open field with craters and shrouding everything in a haze of smoke. After emptying his M1 carbine at the enemy, Murphy grabbed his field telephone and took cover atop the burning tank destroyer. Over the radio, he could hear the artillery commander asking how close the Germans were to his position. Just hold the phone and I'll let you talk to one of the bastards, he yelled back. The tank destroyer was slowly being engulfed in flames, but Murphy saw that its 50 caliber machine gun turret was still operational. He quickly seized the gun and sprayed a withering fire against the German troops nearest his position. He continued firing burst after burst, mowing down Nazi troopers by the dozen and keeping the tanks at bay. All the while, he remained on the phone, directing artillery fire ever closer to his own position and dealing catastrophic damage to the advancing infantry. From their cover on the edge of the tree line, most of Murphy's troops could only watch in shock. I expected to see the whole damn tank destroyer blow up under him at any minute, Private Anthony Abramsky later wrote. As Murphy continued his one-man attack, German gunners riddled his smoldering tank destroyer with small arms and tank fire. One blast nearly threw him from the vehicle and sent razor-sharp shrapnel flying into his leg, but he took no account of the wound and kept fighting. It was only when Murphy ran out of ammunition that he finally withdrew. Dazed and bloodied, he jumped from the still-burning tank destroyer and limped to his men. He later wrote that as he walked away, one thought in particular kept racing through his mind. How come I'm not dead? Murphy's men were no doubt wondering the same thing. It was the greatest display of guts and courage I've ever seen, a stunned Abramsky later wrote. For an hour, he held off the enemy force single-handed, fighting against impossible odds. Murphy had personally killed or wounded some 50 enemy troops and directed artillery against dozens more. Even after reaching safety, he refused to be evacuated from the field and instead rallied his men in a counterattack that drove the Germans back into the woods. That man knew courage. What is it for us to stand up in the face of our fear, the fear of ridicule, the fear of rejection, and tell the left, no, that is not right and I will not be a part of it. If your intent is to destroy the nation that I love, I will stand in your way. When he returned stateside in 1945, he told reporters, bravery is just determination to do a job that you know has to be done. Let me read that again. 
bravery is just determination to do a job that you know has to be done. That profound quote hangs where I can see it nearly every day, a reminder of why we take risks to do what's right. The preservation of our republic is a job that has to be done. Right now, it takes moral courage. It may at some point require physical courage. If we don't learn to stand now, we won't be able to stand then. Our republic must be preserved. The Constitution must be defended. Reagan was absolutely right that America is the last best hope of humanity, and if we fail, we condemn our children to a thousand years of darkness. Defending with moral courage now reduces the likelihood that physical courage will be required later. Either way, it has to be done. There's a really famous quote you've probably heard. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. It's attributed to Edmund Burke, though I find no evidence that he ever spoke or wrote those words. What he did write in a letter to Thomas Mercer is even more powerful. Whilst men are linked together, they easily and speedily communicate the alarm of any evil design. They are enabled to fathom it with common counsel and to oppose it with united strength. Whereas when they lie dispersed, without concert, order, or discipline, communication is uncertain, counsel is difficult, and resistance impracticable. Where men are not acquainted with each other's principles, nor experienced in each other's talents, nor at all practiced in their mutual habitudes and dispositions by joint efforts in business, no personal confidence, no friendship, no common interests subsisting among them, it is evidently impossible that they can act a public part with uniformity, perseverance, or efficacy. In a connection, the most inconsiderable man, by adding to the weight of the whole, has his value and his use. Out of it, the greatest talents are wholly unserviceable to the public. No man who is not informed by vainglory into enthusiasm can flatter himself that his single, unsupported, desultory, unsystematic endeavors are of power to defeat the subtle designs and united cabals of ambitious citizens. When bad men combine, the good must associate, else they will fall one by one an unpitied sacrifice in a contemptible struggle. When the threats and pressures of society combine to separate and silence us, when the tech giants who control the public square exclude us, when the lockdowns keep us apart, when we are afraid to speak or write because our boss might find out, or our friends might ridicule or ostracize us, there is only one response. Do what is right. Let the consequence follow. If socialism continues its advance, you will lose your job. If the left continues its advance into every aspect of our lives, you're going to lose your friends and family. That's not hyperbole. It's history. We're already seeing its beginnings. There are a great many parents who are now realizing that they have lost their children to the public school system, to college professors, and to the influence of popular media. Do not allow fear of consequence to prevent you from voting and living your conscience. I assure you, if we don't get a handle on this, we stand to lose far more. Currently, the biggest threat the left can level against the average person is othering. They make you an other. They kick you off the social media they control. They don't come to your party or send you a Christmas card. They go to lunch without you or get triggered in meetings when you voice your principles. What does it mean to be an other? It means to be an outcast. And no one wants to be an outcast. But what do you cast out of? You're cast out of the club where they deify wealth, status, and power. Where they define themselves not by how they act or treat others, but by what they have and the power they exercise over others. Where the elites are con artists, and the plebs don't know any better. They love grift, abortion, control, and laying the consequences of their horrific choices on those they have power over. This isn't a club to be rejected from. Don't stick around long enough to be rejected. Seek out those who, like you, refuse to exchange their principles for inclusion. This isn't a call for isolationism or tribalism, only to stop seeking the left's approval. 
Most of us probably work with really great people whose opinions have been shaped by the left. Don't isolate yourself from them, but don't seek their approval either. Seek out people who respect you, even when they disagree with you. Edmund Burke was telling his friend that when good people fail to communicate, organize, and stand united against the power-hungry, greedy, and malicious, they are picked off one by one until there's no one left to communicate with, organize with, and unite with. We're not there. Let's make sure we never get there. There's a lot of conservative voices out there. There's an online map of people who donated to Donald Trump's campaign, and the group that made it was trying to out them. But it backfired. Instead of creating a hit list, they created an interactive map revealing a sea of conservative voices. Go take a look, and remember that map only reveals the people who felt safe enough, financially secure enough, and invested enough to actually put their money on the table. For every blip on the screen, there are many others who don't appear, but they're there, just waiting to vote. We are not outnumbered, just outorganized. We can change that. A ship is carried by the prevailing winds. There are a lot of winds blowing in many directions. The prevailing winds are the most consistent. Will that be the wind that seeks to dismantle the Constitution, or the wind that seeks to preserve it? This is going to be a busy week. The election is tomorrow, and I think past episodes have covered what I expect to see after. So I'm going to keep this episode shorter than usual. Let me leave you with a couple of thoughts. If you can't live with yourself, you can't live with others. When you know who you are, what your values are, where you stand, and you're true to that, you'll have the confidence and stability necessary for outside interaction. We can be wrong sometimes, and that's okay. When we know our values, and then we discover new information that reveals that one of our opinions conflicts with those values, we can change. In a society where people know their values and are open to learning, disagreements lead to better understanding and more secure footing rather than anger and violence. Within our society, we should be encouraging and building communities on that idea. And if we do, the day will soon come when those who reject us now will find themselves on the outside. Then, when the tables have turned, we must encourage healing, not exclusion. Do you fear God or your fellow mortals? Are you more concerned about what the fallible people around you think of you, how they judge you, or about what God thinks of you, and how He will judge you? Don't forget that God is real and actively involved in your life. You can't see him, you may not perceive him, you may not even want him, but he's there and he's involved nonetheless. This doesn't mean we forget the importance of presenting ourselves well. How we present ourselves to the world around us matters, but if we're dedicated to living as God directs, we'll present ourselves well. That's part of the genius of God's direction. When we follow him, everything comes together as it should. Having said that, we have to be careful that we're not passive in our faith. There's been a disturbing trend that I suppose I've seen my whole life, but it's coming into stark relief against the backdrop of current events. I can't tell you how many people I've heard say that they were stressed by events happening around them and just clicked off the news and focused on the scriptures and other church things. Then they remark about how when they clicked off the world and left it all in the Lord's hands, they found so much peace. Well, of course they found peace. They shut off the stressor. I don't want to downplay the scriptures and focusing on our spirituality. They're important, and in most cases need to come first. But we can't hide from what's happening. Sticking its head in the sand does not save the ostrich from the lion. It only prevents the ostrich from doing anything useful that might save its life. We can't hide from trouble, and we must not kick it down the road for our children to deal with. We can't be passive in our faith. Those who tell themselves, I'll just avoid these problems and leave them to the Lord, and He'll take care of it, are seeking peace in their lives above all other considerations. Most often, the Lord doesn't take the wheel. He teaches us to be better drivers. I'm reminded of a story relayed by Thomas Paine in the American Crisis Papers. 
He told of a tavern owner in a town called Amboy, who was standing in the doorway of his establishment holding his child and said, in essence, let there be peace in my day. In the papers, Payne chastised the man, telling him and America, if there must be trouble, let it be in my day, that my child may have peace. We're faced with real danger. As Reagan said, there's only one guaranteed way you can have peace, and you can have it in the next second. Surrender. When we choose to click off the problems we face, we're surrendering. To do nothing while the enemy attacks the family, free speech, our free exercise of religion, is itself an act of surrender. Someone recently lamented to me that they were so overwhelmed with their many responsibilities that they couldn't get involved in any of the political movements that are working to make a difference right now. They felt that they were forced into a passive position by sheer lack of time. The reality is, this person is not passive. They looked into the candidates and the measures on the ballot and made informed decisions. They follow the news to the extent that they're able, and that informs their decisions as well. Not everyone can be MLK, Abraham Lincoln, or Paul Revere. And not everyone needs to be. It's a decision to be informed and engaged, and not to click off our problems and sue for peace at any price. All right, I'm going to leave it there. As usual, you can find me on Twitter and Parlor at Into the Fray. If you have topics you'd like me to address, post them up. If you find value in what I'm doing, please share the podcast with your friends and family. These ideas go exponentially further when you share them. Till next week, be informed, stay safe, don't do anything stupid. Thank you.